You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. You know, I'm, I'm going to do more teaching than preaching today. Take your Bibles and go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And then when you get to 1 Timothy chapter 3, go back to Luke chapter 2. Put a finger in each place. I, uh, thinking about the song we just sang, um, I... I, I dreamed all night of Dr. Criswell. Uh, for some reason, uh, I just dreamed all night. Dr. Criswell used to say that um, everything in nature is, 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 in, is in minor keys. You have major keys and minor keys. And he'd talk about, he'd say thunder is in a minor key. He would say the roar of the ocean is in a minor key. Uh, He said, even the prettiest of songbirds will all sing plaintively in a minor key. But he said, when it comes to the angelic beings, they sing in a major key. And as we were just singing, shout to the Lord, and you actually would sing that. I thought to myself, it must have been something like that in Luke chapter 2 that night out there with the shepherds that there was this loud shout of glory to God in the highest. I, I, I can't imagine that it was not anything but a major key and a major shout to the Lord. Now, I'm going to take you, talking about music, I'm going to take you to what many theologians believe was one of the earliest hymns ever sung in the church. Uh, Paul writes about it. Paul uses it in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And um, let, me, let me lead you up to it. 1 Timothy 3 and uh, a couple of verses before that. Verse 14, he says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. He's left Timothy in charge of the church now in Ephesus. And he's saying, you've got to put all these churches, you've got to put these things in order. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. In other words, he says, I'm going to tell you, Timothy, how people ought to behave in church. So that's what he's writing him about, which is the church of the living God. Now, he gets carried off in a way. And he, he gets to talking about uh, the church and he gets talking about God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar in support of the truth by common confession. Now, as a Baptist, that makes me proud to read that. And the word does mean confession there. We are not a creedal people. Baptists are not creedal. That is, we don't stand up and spout creeds. Now, we agree with a lot of creeds. There are a lot of creeds that are out there. I used to go to church uh, with my wife on, on Sundays. And uh, in the uh, Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, they would go through the Apostles' Creed. Well, we Baptists agree with that. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the Apostles' Creed. We, we would agree with all that, but we Baptists say this. This is our creed right here. This is the creed that we have, the Word of God. So we're not creedal in that way. We are confessional. We confess uh, beliefs that we believe the Word of God teaches. I believe and I confess that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. I confess and I believe that Jesus Christ was God incarnate, that he was crucified, dead, buried, and that he rose on the third day. I believe and confess Jesus Christ is coming back. So here is Paul writing to Timothy, and he gives him this confessional uh, that 
many believe was a song. They would sing this, and some have even called this one of the first Christmas carols. Now listen, he who was revealed in the flesh. Now there are those that say, well, Paul never talked about uh, the birth of Christ. Well, what do you call this right here? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the incarnation. He's talking about the birth of Christ. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit. They crucified Christ and said that he was a sinner, but God declared Jesus Christ what? It, you read it in the New Righteous. He's vindicated by the spirit. He is righteous. He is without sin. Look at this. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. It's that middle phrase right there that I want to draw your attention to, seen by angels. Now, the early church would sing that. At least the early church would confess that. And it's interesting to me to stop and think about what did angels know? Now go with me to Luke chapter 2 because last week I told you forget that angel. Now I'm going to bring you back to that angel. And uh, I, I'm just asking the question then, what did angels know? Well, two things here. Number one, they knew everything that God said. Uh, we believe that they were created by God. They are created beings, created by God sometimes before the creation of this earth. There's, some, there's a little debate about that, but it's not worth talking about. Uh, but they were created by God, these creatures, uh, created by God himself. And uh, every time you hear one speak, uh, they always are speaking the word of God. That is, uh, they are given the message they are to speak. That's why they're called messengers. They bring the word of God. They speak what God tells them. Nowhere will you read that an angel shows up and says, for example, you see a lot of angels appearing in the book of Daniel. No angel shows up and says, Daniel, this is the word of God, da-da-da-da-da. And by the way, let me just give you my take on the thing. No angel ever does that. He only speaks the word of God. They know what God has said. Number two, they know what God has done and they, they have seen it and they know what we do. Now, have you ever thought of that? They are very well aware of what we do. In fact, I think it's important enough for you to understand this that I'm going to ask you to put your, I'm going to use a lot of scripture this morning. So uh, just put your finger in Luke chapter two and go with me to the book of Daniel, to the prophecy of Daniel, Daniel chapter four. And in Daniel chapter four, you're going to see something pretty interesting. Listen to what is said. Daniel speaks, uh, Daniel chapter four, verse 13, and he says this, I was looking in the vision in my mind as I lay on my bed and behold an angelic watcher. Do you see that? Singular watcher, a holy one descended from heaven. He called him a watcher. Well, what's he watching? Watching him. Look over at verse 17, because you're going to get it in the plural now. Uh, Daniel 4, verse 17, the sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, plural. And then you come down to verse 23, and he goes back to the singular again, in that the king saw an angelic watcher. Angels watch us. Not only does God watch us, but angels watch us. Uh, you see that all the time through Scripture. And listen, you say, but well, wait a minute, that's just the Old Testament. 
Well, okay. <laughs> Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. Uh, because there, Paul speaking says this. Uh, makes an interesting statement. He says, I think God has exhibited us. Apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. And I just read to you out of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul says, angels have seen. They saw Christ. Now, stop and think about this. I've just given you all of this that angels watch you. They've seen you. Now, hold on to that. But they have seen Jesus as well. Did you know that angels saw the pre-incarnate Christ for all those thousands of human years before he was ever born in Bethlehem? They watched him. They saw him. I started to go through some of that, but I don't have time. Just uh, think about it for a moment. For long before Bethlehem was the birthplace of Christ, Angels saw the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. They saw him born in the manger. Uh, they saw him in the temple when his parents had lost him. Jesus was not lost. His parents had lost him. And they get back and they find him. And angels are watching him when he says to them, Don't you know I must be about my father's business? They watch him through his teenage years. They watch him as a young man. They watch him in the carpenter's shop. They watch him do business. Uh, they watch him as he enters ministry and as he goes down to be baptized by John. They watch him there. They watch him as he goes out in the wilderness. One of the accounts of the temptation of Christ says that the angels came and ministered to him after that event. They watch him through his ministry. They watch him that night in the Garden of Gethsemane where he pours out his heart to the Father. And we're told there in one of the Gospels that an angel came and ministered to him. Angels saw all of this. Angels were the first one to witness the resurrection. Did you, you realize that? Uh, not humans, but angels. They saw the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why in the Gospels, whenever people show up and they're angels at the tomb, they explain all that happened. How did they explain it? Because they had seen it. They accompanied him back up into glory. And let me tell you something. They are coming with him when he comes again. Angels who have seen all of this. And if that is true of angels, let me also let you in on something that's true of Satan and demons as well. They watch you. They watch you. They know you. Do you remember in Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, where all of the sons of God come together, angels, watchers, they come together and Satan is in their midst and God looks up and he sees Satan there and he says, hey, devil, where you been? And he says, I've been going to and fro in the earth, walking up and down in it. And he looks at him and he says, have you noticed my servant Job, who hates evil, who is blameless, who turns away from sin and who fears me constantly? And the devil says, what? I got his address. I've seen him. I've watched him. In fact, I've watched him so closely, I can tell you why he worships you. You ever stop and think about this? Not only does heaven watch you, not only do angels watch you, not only is God's eye on you, but demons in hell watch you as well. They know your habits. 
They know what you like, what you dislike. They know what depresses you. You know why? Listen, Satan has no wisdom, but Satan is incredibly crafty, and he is incredibly clever, and both of those have the implication of uh, being sinister as well. He studies you. He watches you. He knows you. He knows what excites you. Is it any surprise? Just think of a common temptation that comes into your life, whatever it may be. Is it any surprise that that common temptation in your life happens to show up at certain times? Why do you think that happens? Not just by chance, because the demonic world watches you. They know us. Angels know us. They watch us. Now, all of this is unexpected to us. You, you didn't expect to come in here. Lord, this is the Sunday before Christmas, preacher. You're, you're giving me nightmares, you know. What, what are you talking about here in all of this? Well, we don't expect all of this, and that's because we're so human. We don't expect things out of God. Just watch what happens in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2. You've got angels popping in and out of everything. Angel shows up here, angel shows up there. You go to chapter 1, and there is Zacharias, who is the old-aged husband of Elizabeth. And he is there in the temple, in the holy place of the temple, before the, ark of incense, or before the altar of incense. And he's offering up sacrifice, this frankincense, this special uh, blend of incense that you would offer up on that altar there in the holy place. And an angel just suddenly appears there to the right of the altar. Now, the word literally means, Ephiami, it literally means just to appear, just to stand there. He steps out of nowhere into somewhere, and he appears there, just suddenly. You come over in that same chapter, and you've got this same angel who is going to appear now to Mary. In fact, look at what it says here. It's interesting how this is stated in Luke chapter 1 and verse 28, and coming in. That's the angel. This angel sent by God to a city, Gabriel was the angel's name, in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary, and coming in. Now, where does he come from? We're not told. He just appears and he comes into a situation. He comes into a scene. He walks into her life out of the invisible. Same thing happens with Joseph. Now, listen to this. Joseph, an angel appears to Joseph. He appears to Joseph in his dream. So angels apparently can enter into your dream, in, into your thought process, into your dreams. And look at where this angel comes that we see in Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. He was not there, then he was there. He steps out of nowhere. There's going to be this multitude of a heavenly host and they're going to be Gathered there in the sky, standing as if on invisible platforms, they have stepped out of a realm where you cannot see into the realm where humans can see. They don't fade in and out. They are there, stark in living color. They just simply appear. And they always appear, I don't know if you notice this, rarely with anything negative, 
Almost every time an angel comes and appears, he appears to a person who is a servant of God, and that angel always has, almost every time, a positive word, never a negative word. Over and over in every one of these, uh, Gabriel shows up to Zacharias and says, hey man, I got good news, you're going to have a baby. Now, I don't know how good a news that is, as old as he was, but the angel thought it was good news. Mary, listen, the angel comes to Mary, and uh, the angel says to her, greetings, favor, would the Lord is with you. That's a good word. You get over here to these angels that appear, this angel that appeared to the shepherd, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. They were terribly frightened. The angel said to them, no need to be afraid. Don't be frightened. I've got good news of great joy. They come in because angels expect what man never expected, and that is the redemption of God in Christ. Now, I want to show you this morning, this Sunday before Christmas, and I want to just show you this about angels more than anything else this morning. I just want you to pick up on what God is saying through these angels. Number one, I want you to know and, and see this, that angels knew Christ was the Lamb of God. They knew that. Now, this whole thing to me is fascinating. It's not just fascinating this time of year. It's fascinating every time I think about it. One of my favorite places to go is to Bethlehem. It's a little difficult. It's in Palestinian territory today. You have to change buses and change guides and you have to go through all kind of stuff and show your passport and you're going into Palestinian territory. But I love to go there and I usually get in there and we've got a Palestinian guide and he takes the group off and I usually take Debbie and uh, Debbie and I will just walk out, <clears throat> out to the hillside and go off. We did this the last time we were there. We just kind of go off out there and we talk about and we just look at it. It's beautiful. I love uh, those fields and those hills uh, outside of Jerusalem that's known as Bethlehem sheep. You, you just watch the shepherds move up and down in that valley. There's several little valleys that run through there. You just watch them as they go up and back and forth. And you think about the fact that Jesus Christ was born in the midst of a bunch of sheep and in the midst of a bunch of shepherds and in a place that was known for its sheep. Now, it's known, and I shared with you last week, that all of these sheep in Bethlehem belonged to the priests. They were all owned by the priests. The priests owned this whole thing. And if the sheep belonged to the priests, the shepherds did too. They worked for the, they were employed by the priests in Jerusalem. The priests in Jerusalem hired them. In fact, they ran a school down there. And they would send young priests down there for a period of time to learn how to look at a sheep or a lamb and determine, is this a lamb that can be sacrificed? Is this a lamb that is without spot or blemish? Uh, what lambs are acceptable? What lambs are not acceptable? And so they were in and out and worked with these shepherds that they hired to keep the sheep that they owned. And all of those sheep there would go up to Jerusalem and they would go up to Jerusalem for this purpose. They would be sacrificed. You find that all the way from the very beginning of the word of God that the sheep were here to be sacrificed. 
Let me just take you back to Genesis chapter 3 for just a moment. You remember Genesis chapter 3 where God comes and here's the serpent. and Man has rebelled and he sinned and he goes off and he hides from God because he figures out that he's naked. He sees himself as he really is. And we're told in Genesis chapter 3 verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. Now what did he make that uh, garment out of? I don't know. We're not told. So now I'm as right as anybody else. I think it was the skin of a lamb. I think he covered them in the skin of a lamb. I don't think he covered them in cowhide. I don't think he covered them in the, land, uh, in, the, in the skin of a lion. Not a noble lion on the back of sinful man. I just don't think so. I think it was a lamb. And then we come, we're introduced and we're talk, that's talked about here in just a few more verses. In Genesis chapter 4, listen to what it says about Abel. Uh, the, the son of uh, Adam and Eve. Abel was a keeper of flocks. He kept flocks. That's sheep. You don't keep a flock of cows. You don't keep a flock of horses. You keep a flock of sheep. And then we're told that that's what he brought to the Lord. On his part, Abel on his part, brought of the firstlings of the flock and of their fat portions. That's what he brought to the Lord to sacrifice. Why did he keep sheep? Maybe for the wool, but more than anything else, I'm convinced he kept them in order to bring them as a sacrifice to God. From the very opening chapters of the word of God, sheep are being offered up as a sacrifice. They become a picture, a picture of what (laughs) is going to happen to the Messiah when he comes. Get on over to Exodus chapter 12. Y'all just looking at me. Look at your Bible. Look, look at uh, Exodus chapter 12. The Lord comes to Moses and he says this. He says, you tell the people, get a lamb, a yearling, about a year uh, of age. You get a lamb and you take that lamb and you bring it in the house and you keep it for four days. Now, why in the world did, did God tell Moses to do that? Why did they have to go get a lamb and keep it in the house for four days? Because it was just long enough for that family to get attached to that lamb. My wife knows if she gets a dog and she brings it in that house, that inside of four days, she's going to be attached to it. I'm willing to sacrifice the thing, but she'll be attached to it. And that's exactly what they did. They brought it in and God said, on twilight, at twilight on that fourth day, you slaughter that lamb. Don't you know how it hurt that family to do that? After they had played with that thing and fed that thing and that thing would nuzzle up to them at night, There they would sacrifice that lamb and God said they were to eat the meat and he said all of the lamb that is left over, you burn it completely up. Every bit of it, you burn it up. It is to be offered up as a total sacrifice to me. And then you take that blood and you paint that blood over the top of your door and down the posts of the door. And that's what these shepherds understood and the people knew and the priests knew that all of these sheep there in Bethlehem would eventually find their way up. Everything that was born there in those shepherds' field would find its way up there to Jerusalem just like that Lamb of God that was born and placed in the manger there in that place in the midst of all of these lambs. That Lamb too would go up to Jerusalem one day and his blood would be painted on a bar across and down, a cross, and that would become the doorway into which you and I could enter eternity. 
The angels knew that. They understood that. They knew that Jesus Christ was born the Lamb of God. Now, let me show you a second thing. And the second thing is this, is that angels knew that Jesus would be a shepherd. They knew that he was not only the Lamb of God, but let me get back over here to Luke. And you're reading this about these shepherds. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, why were they keeping watch over their flock by night? Because that's what shepherds do. Now, just tuck that thought in verse 8 away for a moment. And let me show you who else appears in this Christmas story. If you look back up, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. I don't know how much you know about Caesar Augustus, but his name was Octavius before he became Caesar Augustus. Um, if you recall in history, when they killed Julius Caesar, uh, by the way, Octavius was the adopted nephew of Julius Caesar. And when Brutus and Cassius and the others had uh, killed Julius Caesar, uh, Brutus and Cassius fled. They fled out to Greece, by the way. They fled to Greece. Well, there were three men that came together. Octavius was one, naturally being the, um, the nephew of Julius Caesar, the adopted nephew, Mark Anthony who loved Julius Caesar, was close to him. He came forward. And then a guy by the name, another general by the name of Lepidus. Those three men became the triumvirate of Rome. That is, they became the rulers of Rome uh, in the death of Julius Caesar. And those three men put together several Roman legions and chased them over across the ancient world into the plains of Philippi. Now, if we get to go to Greece, I'm going to take you there and I'm going to show you where Mark Anthony, Octavius was there, but he was, he was such a wimp. Um, they, he's in the tent, sick. Mark Anthony, that's a man's man. Richard Burton is a man's man, man. He takes the armies and he goes out and he defeats Cassius and Brutus and uh, they kill them. And these three, these three men rise up to take on uh, the ownership of Rome. Well, Octavius is the most brilliant of the three. He does away with Lepidus, uh, who's an older man. He does him in and then he catches up with Mark Anthony, whose mind is on Elizabeth Taylor. And so, you know, he's no, he goes and he kills him. They put him to death. They kill Mark Anthony. And so there he is. Octavius gets all of it. He is the administrative genius that puts Rome together. He's the guy that forms Rome, that makes Rome what Rome is. There he is right here. Why in the world would not angels appear to Caesar Augustus and announce that a Jewish Messiah had been born? You would think that. It would make sense to me. Here's Quirinius. Look at this. This is the next guy you read. Verse 2. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor. Now we know from archaeological information that has been uncovered that Quirinius was governor of Syria on two different times. Now here he is, governor of this area. Why in the world didn't an angel appear to him? Why didn't news come to him? Why wasn't uh, the birth of the Messiah in front of uh, Caesar or in front of Quirinius. Now look back to chapter 1 verse 5 because there's a third guy that uh, Luke only mentions one time. Now 
In chapter 3, you're going to see Herod, but this is Herod the Tetrarch, who is the son of Herod the Great. Right here, he mentions Herod the Great one time. Right here, as far as I can find, this is what I think. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there he was. Herod was the king of Judea for a number of reasons. His father was very good friends with Julius Caesar. And um, Herod grew up in Rome and was very close friends with Mark Anthony. And so they gave him, surprised him. He really was not expecting it. They gave him the whole of Judea because they trusted him. He had grown up with them. They knew the family. And so they gave him this titular headship of being king of Judea. And so he was Rome's puppet there. Why not to Herod? Why not tell Herod? Why not appear to Herod and say, Herod, why to a bunch of shepherds? Because the angels knew that Jesus himself would be a shepherd. Do you remember? Don't forget what it says. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, watching over their flocks by night. That gives you a clue. Now, go with me to John chapter 10 for just a moment. Y'all are quiet today. John chapter 10. I want you to listen to what Jesus calls himself. In this incredible chapter, in verse 11, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. Ego, I'm me. Poime, ho poime, ho kalas. And then it comes back and says, ho kalas, ho poime. I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd. Jesus says that of himself. He says it twice. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd does what? He lays down his life for his sheep. Now look at what he says in verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He's not concerned. He doesn't have a shepherd's heart. And so he comes now in verse 14. He's going to say it a third time. I am the good shepherd. And I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. That's twice he said that. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice. They will become one flock with one shepherd. And this reason for the Father loves me because I lay down, fourth time, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. At that precise moment on Calvary, when Jesus Christ breathed his last, it was not the devil who did that. It was Jesus who said, I choose to die now. It was his authority. He's the 
creator of life, the giver of life, the sustainer of life, the author of life. I choose to die now. And in that tomb on that first Sunday morning, he says, I choose to pick it back up again. I'm going to tell you right now, son, I could go off. He says, this is who I am. Now, listen. Why in the world do you think the Holy Spirit put in this story? Herod, Caesar Augustus, Quirinius. We all think, well, he's pinpointing time. Uh, (laughs) He's not pinpointing time. He's pinpointing the fact that God's Messiah would never rule like Caesar or Quirinius or Herod, but that his ruler would be a shepherd. He cares for his sheep. Do you understand Jesus cares for you? Do you understand? Do you know that he laid his life down for you? Who else has done that? No one. He laid his life down for you, and by his own power, he picked his life back up. Listen, he could have in spirit form just gone on to the Father. But he came back and bodily he was resurrected so that one day when you lie down in death, your body will rise and be a body like Christ. He's a shepherd. He's not a tyrant. He's not an iron-fisted dictator like you see in history. The angels knew that when God's son would come, he would be a shepherd. But let me show you one last thing. And the last thing is this. Angels knew that all along he was the king of angels. Now, you're not going to find that title here, but you see everything about it. Look at what the angels say. Look at the nouns they use when they describe Jesus. I'm back in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. This is Gabriel giving this to uh, Mary. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He's called the son of David. He is called the son of the most high. He is the Lord. You come in chapter 2 when this angel appears to these shepherds and listen to what he says to them. For today in the city of David, there is born for you. He's called a savior. He is Christa, the anointed one, the Adonai, the master. You begin to look through scripture when angels speak and look at how they speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me take you to just one or two other passages of scripture and I'll sum this up. Go with me, if you would, right now to Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2, there's an awful lot about angels said. The book of Hebrews is essentially this, the superiority of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews is showing you the superiority of Jesus Christ over angels. That's how he starts this whole thing off. He's the radiance of his glory, verse 3, the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Never happened. God never said that to Gabriel. God never said that to Michael. God never said that to a single angel. But he said that to the Son of God. He said, you are my son. Now watch this. 
Today I've begotten you. And again, I will be a father. Do you see what he just said? Today I've begotten you. He's talking about Christmas. Today I've begotten you. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world. Do you see that? He's talking about Christmas Day. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Why? Because he's king. (laughs) Who do you worship? You worship the king. God said when he came in that day, when he came into this world, God told all the angels, bow before him. Let all the angels worship him. You see that beautiful picture in Revelation where all of these angels do just that. Now look, go to the second chapter of Hebrews and let me show you this. Let me show you what I think is the most fascinating thing of all. I'm going to use this and then I'm going back to 1 Peter 1. But now watch what the writer of Hebrews say, says. We do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Now for a little while, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Why? We'll read the text. Because of the suffering of death. No angels die in scripture. Do you ever notice that? You don't ever read, and the Philistines ganged up on an angel and killed him. You don't ever see that. Doesn't happen. Angels don't die. Not fallen angels don't die. They just exist forever in an eternal hell. And uh, the angels of God never die. And so Jesus had to be born a little lower than the angels so that he could go to Calvary and die. So that because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's who Jesus died for. He died for everyone. If every man, woman, and child in all of history right now were able to rise up and confess Jesus Christ, they'll do it one day. It would never exhaust the grace and the glory of God. Isn't that a marvelous thought? He died for the whole world. In other words, the power of the blood of Christ is so powerful, it could cover every single person that has ever lived and that will ever live. Now, not everybody is saved, but it is possible for everybody to be saved. He comes and he says, that's by his grace. Now, listen, look back. This is the last passage, I promise you, the last passage I'll take you to, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Now listen to what is said there. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, that's verse 10, made careful search and inquire. Listen, the prophets, Isaiah didn't understand everything. Do you think he understood everything he was writing in Isaiah chapter 53? I don't. I know Daniel wasn't. Daniel in the last chapter asked, and he says, what what does all this mean? And God says, listen, Daniel, just write it and seal it up. It's not for you. It's for the days to come. It's for an age to come. Listen to what's said. They made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know the person or the time, the spirit of Christ within them. Do you want to know, do I believe this is inspired? Yes. Why? Because it was the spirit of Christ within these men who inspired them to write this book. 
That's what it says right there. I didn't make that up. The spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted, the sufferings of Christ to follow and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them. They were not serving themselves. They didn't grasp it all. But they were serving you, you now, those of us that live on this side of the cross. But in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Do you see that word long? Epithumia. Epithumia means a strong passion, a strong driving desire. In Greek, the word lust is neither negative or positive. You can say in a, ne- in a positive way, I lust after Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, or after, I'm sorry. Boy, that's sin. Lord, forgive me. Krispy uh, Kreme donuts. Krispy Kreme first, then Dunkin' if you can't find a Krispy Kreme. But so it's not a negative word. It's not a, it's, we use it in English. It's such a negative word. This word right there means to lust for. They longed, they had a passion to look over into what? Into grace, into your salvation. Here are these angelic beings, these creatures created by God that are absolutely fascinating to us and they get down and they lean over and they look into to see that the king of angels shed blood for you. They are curious about grace. They'll never experience it. They'll never know what redemption is. They'll never ever understand or grasp what it means to be saved. Yet we have a Savior, the King of Angels, who died for us and gave us His grace. In all of heaven finds that awesome. How in the world could we do less than absolutely adore him? Those of us who've experienced the grace and the mercy of God. If the angels fall down on their knees who will never know salvation's story. What in the world should we do? Let's stand and pray about it. How about you this morning? To come and say, I'm willing to follow my Christ who loves me so, so that wherever he leads, I'll go. How about you? You ever stop to think of the great love of God that he has for you, that the created beings in another world and a different dimension look at you and can never understand how did our king die for a man or a woman who had rebelled against him? What kind of love What kind of mercy? What kind of grace? That's the story of Christmas. What about you this morning? Would you come and publicly say, I'm here to follow Jesus Christ. 
I'm giving my life to him. I'm putting my trust and my faith in him. Others of you need to come and join this church and say, we want to be a part of this fellowship. God is feeding us here. He's led us here. Now, we need to be actively involved in the life of the body of Christ here. Some of you young people this morning, that's the greatest story you will ever hear. God's been speaking to your heart. And you know down on the inside, God's calling. In some way, God's calling you to some kind of ministry. Why not surrender this day? Father, I just thank you for what the angels knew and what the angels saw and how the angels worship. And Lord, I look at myself experiencing what no angel will ever experience. Father, I ask, how could I not worship every day, every day, the God who loved me so. Oh, Father, I pray. I pray, Father, that you would be honored with our response, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Kirkwood's going to lead you in a hymn. You know it by heart. Sing it with him and come as God speaks. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.